0: And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to shift gears a little bit. While those we've looked more at really just our heart and our life and just really put the mirror on ourselves, tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. And we're going to talk about the Bible struggle. The Bible struggle. And I think the reason I titled it like this, one, is I think it's vague enough to make you go, what are we going to talk about? But two, I think it also is what it is. We struggle whenever it comes to the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. And it's going to be twofold tonight. All of us at some point have asked the question, is this really God's word? All of us at some point have maybe had doubts. All of us at some point have maybe been skeptical. And there's a good chance that most of us probably have that. And some of us even right now, a lot of us maybe even right now would say, you know, I'm not real sure. If I were to ask you, say, hey, look, I'm going to pick a random person from the crowd to come up here and explain why they believe this book is the word of God you would immediately do what <laughs> you start sinking head down right like I'm gonna pull my head down and act like I'm not here go to sleep something I'm gonna make something happen where I don't go up there because truthfully y'all we struggle sometimes with this idea of is this really God's word And so, first I want to look at that and I want to help encourage you and hopefully instill confidence in you that this book that we have is the word of God But then secondly, the Bible struggle, like I said, it's dual. So one, it might be about believing it, but secondly, we struggle to, if we even say we believe that it's God's word, we struggle to actually act like it, right? Even if we were to pull down the filters, we struggle. Everybody's been there of saying, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but, right? We've all been there. We've got to be honest about that, right? And so we're going to look at what are some ways that we can get past that. So I want to instill confidence in you that, the, that this is the word of God, one. And two, I want to convict you to live in such a way that shows that you really believe it. So we're going to do that by answering four questions. What is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? Can we really trust the Bible? And what must we do with the Bible? And admittedly, before I even start, y'all, I'm gonna go more on the offensive approach. There's a lot of defensive things where people ask questions and we have to give feedback to that. But for the most part tonight, I wanna tell you why we believe it's God's word and make the person who wants to be skeptical give a defense against that. And so first question is what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Whenever we say the Bible struggle, we need to first really say, okay, what are we talking about whenever we say the Bible? Where the Bible is a book, right? It is composed of 66 smaller books that are separated into two testaments. There's the Old Testament, where you have 39 books of the Old Testament separated into three different genres, you have historical books. You have poetry or poetical books, and you have prophecy or prophetical books. These books are written in Hebrew, and some of them in Aramaic, parts of some of them, like Daniel, the last half of Daniel was in Aramaic, but Hebrew and Aramaic. These all chronicle the life up until Christ, or really up until the 400 years before Christ was born. The next we have the New Testament. Now the New Testament begins whenever Jesus Christ was born and we have the Gospels. It's 27 books long, we got four Gospels. We got narrative with the book of Acts. We've got letters or epistles that are written from men to the church or to regions. And then we have apocalyptic scripture or another type of prophecy with revelation. And if you've read it, apocalyptic barely even defines it. But so whenever we say the Bible, this book is believed to be the Word of God. It's believed to be inspired by God and literally the Word of God. And what's good to note is we're not bringing this on the text, in the Bible it claims to be the Word of God. I read this this week, I thought it was really interesting. Over 3,000 times the Bible either says or alludes to being the Word of God. Over 3,000 times. So the Bible claims it. The people that wrote it, you see this over and over, especially in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, right? And so the Bible claims to be the actual word of God. If you have a copy of God's word with you, I hope you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to say on the front end, tonight's going to be a little bit different in that usually we're going to teach through a text. Tonight's going to be a lot more like a little bit longer TED Talk than an actual sermon. We're going to, we're going to dissect this by looking at a lot of different things and mainly looking at um, extra evidence as well. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. I want you to see this first. So 2 Timothy, written from Paul to his mentee, Timothy. This is right before Paul dies. And these are some of the last words he gives him. Verse 16, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, all scripture comes from the mouth of God. It is the words of God. And then secondly, he says, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what is the Bible? Well, it's the word of God. It's, it's literally breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that you may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, it's, it's God's word to help us know him but then also be able to live fully for him. If you say it's profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction and training and righteousness, that means it's profitable for everything that is good and to live a godly lifestyle. So this book is the word of God. 66 books, two testaments, that's what the Bible is. So, how did we get the Bible? Second question. Well, you may have heard this before. Plenty of people will make this claim that the Bible is just another book that is written by men. It's another book that's written by man, therefore it can't be true. Well, just know the implications of that. If, if something that's written by men can't be true, then you can rejoice tonight because you can go home and take your psychology book and chunk it. Take your biology book and chunk it. Take your history book and chunk it. Take your math book and chunk it. I said that one time at a youth event. I think we're about to have a rave. I mean, they're like, yeah, he told me. He told me I could do this. No, not, not quite. But the whole point is if the criteria means if it's written by a man, it cannot be true, then therefore anything that is written is not true, right? That doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. And so, yes, the Bible was written by men, no doubt. We don't, we don't try and argue that. It was written by men, but it was inspired by God. Flip over further right to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, almost all the way towards the end of the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And I want you to see what Peter has to say. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That word interpretation also means origin. If you have your Bible, that'd be an awesome spot to circle and put out to the side, origin. It does not come from our origin. It does not originate with man. In other words, it originates with God. And, and, And how could this be the case? He says in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. The origin wasn't from man, it was from God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, This idea of being carried along by the Holy Spirit is really an interesting concept. It's the idea of having a sailboat and a sailboat setting its sails and the wind carrying it along. Now the sailboat doesn't do the work, right? The wind is doing the work, but the sailboat is being carried about by the wind. It's this idea that men wrote the Bible, yes. Men wrote it, but as you read it, you notice even the personality of men come out. That's why you read Luke, you're reading from a doctor. That's why he's gonna be extremely detailed. You read Matthew, he's gonna be writing to Jews because he is a Jew. You're gonna be reading John, and he's gonna be arguing that Jesus is who he says he is. You read from Peter, and it's gonna sound some way. You read Paul's letters, it's gonna sound a different way. But all these were carried about by the Holy Spirit to make sure that what they wrote down was God's word. They wrote God's word. In the Old Testament, you have much more of history of just saying what really happened, and you have, thus says the Lord, over and over again. Now, two things that people will come at here, and once again, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on these, is people will say, well, how did we actually even get these books, right? We have 66 books. How did they even come about? Didn't some, some council at some point just decide which ones they wanted to do, and arbitrarily just said, you know what, these books are in, these books are out. That's not what happened at all. I'm not gonna go too much into it, but a word that you should learn is the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, this idea of the canon of scripture. The word canon means a reed or a measuring rod. It's like a ruler or a metric. And basically what happened is, is there was a council that got together and said, okay, which of these books is the word of God? But it isn't like they got together and said, you know what? Let's see which ones we like, which ones we don't like. That's not the case at all. They used a metric. And the metric looks something like this. There's four criteria that the New Testament books had to meet in order to be considered a part of scripture. Now, I wanna say before this, very little if any people try and argue that the 39 of the Old Testament are not the 39 inspired. It's pretty difficult to argue that for several different reasons we won't go into, but the main really criticism you will hear is for the New Testament. There are other books. There's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter. These other things, why didn't they get included? Well, whenever the council met in the 300s, and if you're like me, you ask, "Well, why did it take till the 300s for them to actually meet?" Well, before then, one there was persecution constantly throughout. There was no spot where they could say, "Oh, let's get a council together and talk about this." They probably would have been killed. And then also, secondly, in the 300s, this is really whenever the rise of people would start saying, hey, this book is scripture, this book is scripture, this book is scripture, and the religious leaders recognize, hey, we need to have a a record of what are the books that actually are inspired by God so the people aren't confused. And so their metric was it had to meet four criteria. One, it had to meet apostleship which makes sense, apostleship. It had to be written by one of the 12 apostles or somebody who was close to the apostles. In other words, they had to have the authority that Christ imputed onto the apostles. If it was from some other person than that, then it wouldn't be considered in there the second thing would be antiquity in other words does it date back they're in the 300s does this writing actually date back to the first century close to christ in other words look at it this way some people were writing in the second century even the third century that they were writing scripture that they were saying scripture but they would use lingo that didn't match the first century it'd be like if i told you hey i was reading a book from the 1700s and this guy was talking he said man that was dope be like wait a minute the book was from when again I'm pretty sure they didn't say that back then That was more like an early 2000 thing right like they didn't say that it's kind of the same way here like like which of them were dated back then which of them sound like that and so the third thing would be orthodoxy does it sing the same song orthodoxy is is it right in doctrine y'all some of the books out there I had a list once again for time's sake I cut them out because you can easily go and look at this online and get this information But there are certain gospels that would say stuff that people would say, hey, this is the gospel of Thomas. And in the midst of the gospel of Thomas, it tells you if you're a girl, you're not worthy to be a Christian. You have to have a sex change in order to become a follower of Christ. That doesn't really sound the same as what, I don't know, the rest of the 27 books we have, right? There's nothing about that. By any means. And so there are these books, does it sing the same song? Does it say the same thing? Or does it sound more like it's an idea conjured up by people in the first, second, or the third century? Was it orthodox? Did it teach what the other books were teaching? And then fourth, and this is really important, is reception. Was it widely spread? You see, all of these books that were written were sent to a region or to a church, but it wasn't the purpose, was to stay there. These books were considered to have the authority of Christ coming from apostles. They would be circulated. So in other words, if everybody knew about the book of Thomas, and then I came from Quitman, Louisiana. Half of you don't even know where that's at still, and I talk about it all the time. 15 minutes that direction, south of here. That's where I'm from, Podunk, Quitman. If I came from there, I was like, no, no, no. There's a gospel here that y'all don't know about. They would go, I'm sorry, that isn't, that, that isn't right. If it was by the apostles written to y'all, it would have been widespread. It had to be widespread. It had to be written by an apostle or close associate. It had to be um, of antiquity, and it had to be orthodoxy and widely spread. So another question would be, how do we know we have the actual words that were written back in the day? Y'all, these questions can keep coming and coming and coming, and what I want to tell you is there is plenty of resources online for this. And while it might be fun to pull up a list of questions, which I do have on another document that I didn't include in the outline, of rebuttals, rebuttals, rebuttals. I don't wanna play defense tonight, I wanna play offense. And so what I wanna tell you is the way that we got the word is mainly God preserved it. Through his way, his means, he preserved his word for us to make sure that we would get the right scriptures. Yes, a council got together to discuss, but they recognized which ones bear the marks of scripture. It was written by man, but it was inspired by God, which leads us to the third question. Why can we trust the Bible? Why can we trust that this really is the word of God? And I wanna give you five reasons why. Once again, play an offense. And the first reason is this, is the indestructibility of the Bible the indestructibility of the Bible. No worries if you don't know how to spell indestructibility. I got spell check and it's on the screen for you. The indestructibility of the Bible. Do you realize how many people have not tried to get people to stop reading God's word but have tried to destroy God's word? Like the amount of times that this has happened it's unbelievable. A, a guy wrote, his name is, um, you, the title of the book is called Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you know, to write that down, you can pull that up online. You can just go to the index and just scroll through, and he's accounted for how many times, all the stories, really from a lot, the first 500 years of, after Christ died, of all the times whenever the scriptures were tried to be burned or, 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 or done away with, or the amount of people that died for the faith, all these different things. The indestructibility of the Bible is quite interesting. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You have the mass persecutions and trying to decimate the Bible and and decimate God's people, just some that are accounted for, 80, 67, 81, 108, 162, 192, 235, 249, 257, 274, 303. The 303 one's really interesting to me. 303 is by the Roman emperor named Diocletian. He issued an edict to destroy Christians and their Bible. And this wasn't just like a, a minor suggestion. It began February 23rd of 303, whenever they set a church and all of its people on fire. Then he declared that all who followed Christ must recant their faith and give up their Bibles or be burned. The persecution that followed was brutal. The edicts were posted everywhere that if anyone was found with a Bible, they would be burned. One city named Phrygia consisted entirely of Christians. They went there and they burnt the whole city. Over a burned and extinguished Bible, Diocletian built a monument on which he wrote these triumphant words. The name Christian is extinguished. It's done away with. I've done away with all the Christians and their scripture. Well, 25 years later, Diocletian was dead. The new emperor named Constantine sought to find copies of the Bible if there were any left. He sent an edict for copies to be delivered to the authorities and in one day he received over 50 copies of God's word. Then he commissioned 50 more copies of the Bible to be prepared at government expense. Y'all, the stories like this are over and over and over of this continual attempt to get rid of God's word, to get rid of Christians. One of my personal favorites happened uh, more recent than that, 1776 by a guy named Voltaire. He was a French philosopher and he announced, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. 100 years later voltaire was dead and his own printing press and his house was being used to print and store bibles for the geneva bible society you know they had gotcha on the walls in that house right 100 years from that day voltaire's prediction the first edition of his work sold for 11 cents while the british government paid the Tsar of russia half a million dollars for an ancient bible manuscript take that right and Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he quotes H.L. Hastings, who says, infidels for 1,800 years have been, overth- have been refuting and overthrowing this book, yet it stands as solid as a rock. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and kings, princes and rulers have tried their hand at it. They die, and yet the book still lives. A little further down in that same chapter, he quotes another guy who he only calls Rimmer, And he says, men have died on the gallows for reading it, have burned at the stake for owning it, yet in spite of the strongest forces that hell could unleash, and in the face of animosity of tyrants and rulers, there are more Bibles in the earth today than there are copies of any other book that has ever been written. And y'all, what I want to tell you tonight is this. One of the things that I love about God's word is you can stand up with it. Now it's more of an intellectual assault than ever has been, but Voltaire's idea was an intellectual assault in the 1700s. Continually doubt and scrutiny has been brought against God's word for 2,000 years now. And hear me, it can stand. Hear me, you don't have to be afraid, hear me. There's not a question that somebody's gonna ask of this that you need to be afraid about. Now, if somebody asks questions that they want it to answer something that it's not about, then, okay, it doesn't make sense. People want to ask, oh, well, what's the molecular biology about a cell that you find in the Bible? Say, okay, well, what's four times four found in the Bible? It's not a math book. It's not a science book. It doesn't waste itself with trivial matters. It tells us about God and how he came to save us. It's not a book about learning this aspect or that aspect or studying just for that regard. It's a book about knowing who God is and what he's done and letting it change our lives, God doesn't have everything included in this, but he has enough in here for us to place our full faith in him. And what I want to tell you again is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's a time where I had this idea that, like, okay, there's certain questions I don't want to be asked because I just don't know. Hear me, it's handled it. It can handle it. It's done it for 2,000 years, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I love what Jesus says. Uh, Hopefully I would say that. I always love what Jesus says, right? Matthew 16, 18, he says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have three truths from that. Christ will have his church, the church will be mildly attacked, but none of the devil's attacks will destroy it. And it is the same with God's word. Nothing will destroy it. Nothing will get rid of it. The Bible has survived, not because the pages of the Bible are that special, but because the God in whom these pages talk about is. The indestructibility of the Bible. The second thing is the consistency of the Bible. This might be my personal favorite. Actually, that's not true. The last one is. This might be my second personal favorite. The consistency of the Bible. What I want you to see is I'm gonna compare this just a little bit to other religious books and their leaders. And what I want you to see is the Bible stands starkly different in stark contrast from any other work or any other book. So the Bible is the book of Christianity, right? The author, it's over 40 different authors, written in three different languages, written on three different continents over a span of over 1,500 years with one message, with one song that is sung throughout. One unified message, one mastermind, one person, Jesus Christ. And what I want you to think about is other religious books. First off, Hinduism. My guess is none of you in here know any of the books of Hindu. Mainly it's two books, the Vedas and the Upanishads. And what you see here is the author of these books is unknown. All that you know about them is they say that they're wise. That's it. You go to Islam or Muslim, the book of the Quran or the Koran, however you say it. It was written by one man named Muhammad. Muhammad was, lived a completely immoral lifestyle, married as many women as he wanted to, wanted to, including his six-year-old niece, which he justified by saying he had a dream about her, so it was okay. The way that, that Islam even prevailed in its earliest days is they raided caravans, killed opposers. They were immoral in war. And they spread by immoral means. Now, to, to be clear, I'm not saying that the writers of the Bible were perfect people. You read them, they say that they're not perfect, right? But the difference in Muhammad and them is they don't claim to be, they claim to know the one who is, not to be him. The third one is Buddhism, specifically Southern Buddhism, their book is the Pali Canon. The founder is the great Buddha, Right? And he attained knowledge, which helped him write this book. The way he attained knowledge is interesting. The short version is he grew up in wealth and prosperity. Whenever he's 29 years old, celebration of the birth of his son, he flees and he runs off. He's not happy. He wants to attain knowledge. So he lives an ascetic lifestyle. Basically what that means is he punishes his own body in order to hopefully revive his own spirit. He starves himself, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. Eventually one day he's put up with it or he's fed up with it of not having any purpose in life, not knowing this great knowledge he's seeking. So he goes, he sits under a tree and says, I'm not gonna leave here until I gain knowledge. And in the midst of his starvation and water deprivation, he says he finally hears from the great unknown to which he ended up writing from his gained knowledge. The fourth is Mormonism. Their book is the Book of Mormon, written by one man, Joseph Smith, in 1830. So what you have with Joseph Smith, the short version is is there were golden tablets that an angel told him where they were, so he goes and he gets these golden tablets, and he has to get a seer stone, and he gets a hat, and he puts the seer stone in this hat over his face to read the golden tablets because they're actually written in Reformed Egyptian. Not to be confused with regular Egyptian, right? I don't know the difference. It's written in Reformed Egyptian. And he reads these and he he transcribes them. But then he says he has to give these tablets back so nobody ever saw the golden tablets. Though years later, 11 men decided to say that they had seen the tablets. But it was one man writing this. You move on to Jehovah's Witnesses. Maybe one of the more difficult ones for us to see because they claim to use the Bible that we use. Well, in the 1800s, there was this sect of people that, that, that really was led by a few different leaders where they started saying that, that they would twist some of the doctrines of Scripture and really when, between the 1920s and the 1940s, this is really whenever this became prominent. And they would twist doctrine and twist Scripture to say what they wanted it to say eventually to where in the 1950s, 55 through 61, they translated their own Bible. They got the Hebrew, the Greek, and they translated their own Bible, and they made an extremely inaccurate translation so that it would match their doctrines some of the things you see them and how they've been exposed is first they said jesus is coming back in 1844 didn't happen 1873 didn't happen 1925 didn't happen 1975 didn't happen then to cover for this failure and that they didn't predict it correctly the the jehovah's witnesses thus had a new doctrine that christ actually returned invisibly in 1914 and had begun a new rule commencing in 1918 I'm not trying to talk and really push through all the doctrines of each of these things. What I want you to see is this, the stark difference that the Bible stands in relation to other religious books. Hinduism, unknown author. Muslim, one man. Buddhism, one man. Mormonism, one man. Jehovah's Witness, one counsel, the Bible. Over 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, one message, not contradicting each other. One song being sung all the way through Y'all, the consistency of the Bible should be shocking to us. What we have here is not just an ordinary book. It is God's word. I love how Tim Chaffee says this. He's an author and writer for Answers in Genesis. Talking about the Bible, he says, shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest, all penned portions of scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history, giving spiritual and moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, and places of exile while writing history, laws, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. And then he ends by saying, yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals that a Bible displays a flawless internal consistency, it never contradicts itself or its common theme. And if somebody wants to tell you differently, I would say, check it. I'm not gonna be afraid. I believe that this is God's word. You think there's an inconsistency? Okay, well, let's talk about it. Because what I've found is whenever I've struggled with a possible inconsistency, it's because I didn't understand it, or I read it wrongly, or in some cases, I had to talk to somebody that knew more about it than me, and they're like, well, it's hard to explain the way that you would say this one Greek word in English, so it means this, and you're like, oh, okay, well, that makes a lot more sense. But y'all, we don't have to be afraid of the Bible. We don't have to be afraid of people questioning it. It is a book like any other book. It's indestructible, and it's extremely consistent. The third thing we see is the internal evidence of the Bible. The internal evidence of the Bible. So once again, the Bible is written by men. But they say that it's inspired by God. They even tell, say that each other, Peter actually in 2 Peter, if you want to write it down, 3, 16 and 17, Peter actually talks about Paul's writing and he calls Paul's writing scripture. But so I guess a good question for us might be, okay, so men wrote this book, they say it's from God, therefore we should just believe it. Seems a bit skeptical, right? I would agree with you. But then if you actually look at the content of the Bible, you see the internal evidence that is legitimately God's word is overwhelming. Specifically, I look at one thing, prophecy in the Bible. Something that makes the Bible stand out is whenever God says something's going to happen, it does happen. If you go and you look for like, okay, how do we know we really have God's word? You might learn about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in in 1956, between 1946 and 1956 era, and there were 11 different jars that were found around the northwest side of the Dead Sea. It's actually interesting how they were found. The shepherd was sitting out there throwing rocks, and he throws a rock, and he hears it make a funny sound, and he goes and looks, and he finds a jar. Inside the jar, he finds paper that obviously looks old to him. He takes it in. Excavations begin. They find 11 different jars. Inside these 11 jars, they have most all of the books of the Old Testament written, at least parts of it, in these jars except for the book of Esther. They date back to 200 years before Christ, and they're exactly in Hebrew what we have. The exact same thing. And so the whole reason I bring that up now is Hebrew scripture was set in stone before Jesus came. And the reason I'm saying that is because I want you to see just about prophecy about who the Christ was going to be. Just regarding prophecy about who the Messiah would be. We know that the Old Testament was plenty completed before Christ ever came, so nobody can argue, well, maybe they changed the Old Testament to match who Jesus actually was. But Jesus actually came and fulfilled all 48 messianic prophecies regarding his birth and his resurrection. In Vodibachum's book, The Ever-Loving Truth, he tells the odds of this happening. I'm not 100% sure how he got to all this, but he tells the odds of this happening. He says the odds of eight of these 48 being fulfilled are the same odds as this. Imagine if you were to, to cover Texas, two feet tall and quarters. Now, if you don't know this, Bad on geography. Texas isn't the smallest state in the world, right? Two feet tall of quarters, and imagine you were to paint one of those quarters red. Imagine you were to blindfold one person, put him anywhere you want in Texas, and said you get one pick blindfolded. Pick the red quarter. Basically, you're saying that's impossible, right? The, the, the probability of that is one in 10 times the 100 million billion, that means nothing to me. It means nothing to you. It's a big number, right? That's not just eight of 48 of them being filled. Of all 48 of them being filled, it's not one in 10 to the 17th. It's one in 10 to the 157th power. I didn't even try to look up what number that was. And here's the thing, y'all. the, uh, the Really, the odds of Jesus, what was said about him actually coming true, are impossible. Just to name a few of them. The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, that's in Micah. Born of a virgin, that's in Isaiah. Sold for 30 pieces of silver, that's in Zechariah. The silver was going to be used to buy a field, that's in Zechariah. He would be mocked during his death, Psalm 22. He'd be condemned, condemned with criminals, Psalm 22. He'd be silent while he's accused, Isaiah 53. Lots would be cast for his clothes, Psalm 22. He'd be buried by a rich man, Isaiah 53. His resur- he would be resurrected from the dead, Psalm 16. And listen to this one. His hands and his feet would be pierced, Psalm 22. And then he would be pierced after his death, Isaiah 53. Whenever Psalm 22 was written, there was no such thing as a cross. There was no such thing. The torture chamber of death, the cross, was not invented yet. And so for Psalm 22 to say his hands and his feet would be pierced is predicting something that's not even invented yet. And then Jesus, to make no mistake, whenever he's on the cross, the last word he said is what? What? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first verse of Psalm 22 pointing, saying it was about me. Y'all, the prophecies in scripture, if you look at them, it leaves no doubt that this book is not just an ordinary book, it is a book from God. You have the the sheer indestructibility, its consistency, the internal evidence, and then fourthly, the external evidence of the Bible. The external evidence of the Bible. Whenever archaeologists go and seek to make their digs, to learn more about history, to learn more about a region, to learn more about the world, do you know what their primary source is for their digs? It's the Bible. No dig in history has ever contradicted God's word. Now, there have been plenty of times where people have said, there's no evidence of that, so that can't be true. Archaeologists find it. There's no evidence of that, so it can't be true. Archaeologists find it. There's no evidence of that, so it can't be true. Archaeologists find it. If you want to go ChristianAnswers.net, they actually have a list of all of these that are recorded. I didn't even look through all of them because I just started scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I'm going to give you just some of the ideas. Skeptics used to criticize the Bible for its mention of the Hittite people in 2 Kings. The lack of any archaeological evidence to support the existence of a Hittite culture was often cited as a rebuttal against Scripture. In 1876, however, archaeologists discovered evidence of the Hittite nation, and by the early 20th century, the vastness of the Hittite nation and its influence in the ancient world was common knowledge. They even found a whole Hittite library. Another one, it once... It was once claimed that there was no Assyrian king named Sargon as recorded in Isaiah 20 because this name was not known in any other recorded book. Then Sargon's palace was discovered in Korsabad, Iraq. The very event mentioned in Isaiah 20, his capture of Ashdod was actually recorded on the palace walls where they found it. Another one, many critics denied the existence of King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the Bible states that he was a king who had a majestic rule in Babylon. Well, a historical dig in the early 1900s not only proved that Nebuchadnezzar was a real historical figure, but they uncovered his palace and library, which proved it was quite magnificent. I'll do another one. You are just looking at me. All right, another king who is doubt, who is in doubt was Belshazzar, king of Babylon, named in Daniel 5. This is the king who offered Daniel the the position of the third highest ruler in the kingdom, which was interesting. If he's a ruler, why would he offer the third? Why not the second hand in his kingdom? The last king of Babylon, based on recorded other sources, was Nabonidus. But tablets were found showing that Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son, who served as a co-regent in Babylon. In other words, he was a co-leader. Thus, whenever Belshazzar offered to make Daniel the third highest ruler in the kingdom, that was all he could offer because there was already two. Now, these are just a few. I mean, literally, you can go and you can look and you can just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. The external evidence of the truthfulness of God's word is alarming. And so we see all these external things of indestructibility, consistency, internal evidence, external evidence, and the fifth one's a bit different it's personal testimony. It's personal testimony. The amount of men and women who have given their lives to this book, or the amount of men and women who've had their lives taken because of this book, the amount of men and women who've just radically, their life has been radically transformed. I want you to think just specifically about the disciples. Jesus wasn't the first person to come and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. He was not the first. But the difference in Jesus and the other guys is when they died, their following scattered. When Jesus is, whenever Jesus died, what happened? The same thing. His followers scattered. But three days later, they came back and started claiming he rose from the dead. Not only did they say that, but I love how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says over 500 people saw Jesus rose from the dead, and he literally says, go and look, go and see, go and ask them, they're still living. You know, if you make a big claim and you're scared of somebody going to check it out, you kinda back down, right? If you make the claim like, okay, man, they only made a what on their ACT, pff, I could do a lot better than that. If they say, okay, well, good, we have a practice test right here, you go, I mean, you know, I didn't sleep much last night. So, you know, you kind of back off of that, right? I know for me, one of those things, oh, I could whoop him in ball, whatever. Oh, good, because he's here, and y'all can play one-on-one. Oh, you know, ah, right? You know something. Some's always, right? If you make a big claim, but you can't back it up, you don't say, hey, check me out, and what you see, Luke one, eyewitnesses. What you see, Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen. Go look, eyewitnesses. What you see, First Peter fifteen. I mean, 1 Corinthians fifteen, eyewitnesses. Over and over again, these guys are saying, "We saw Jesus." And how much did they believe in that mission? All twelve of them were killed for their faith. I don't know about you, but I'm not dying for a lie. And then after that, continually, once again, Fox's Book of Martyrs, just scroll and look at the index. The amount of people who've given their lives saying, this is the truth. The amount of people you know who God's word got a hold of them and it transformed them. Y'all, whenever I became a believer, I was a different guy until I was 22, Whenever I gave my life to Christ, I remember I went to my dad and I told him, I said, Dad, I gave my life to Christ. He's like, Merrick, you've been around the church your whole life. What are you talking about? You gave your life to Christ. You were baptized in your area. You did all that already. I'm like, No, you don't understand. It's in color now. And I can remember, he's he's like, Okay, I kind of get you. I remember a month later, I'll never forget it. We're sitting together and he goes, I believe you. I said, What do you mean you believe me? He goes, I believe that you came to know Christ. Everything's different. To which I said, I told you, right? Y'all, what book says you go from death to life when you believe in Christ? Not just says that, but how many of you know people who were walking one direction and whenever Christ got a hold of him or her, it flipped them around and they went the opposite direction? How many of you know people of the millions and millions of testimonies of people who said, God's word changed my life? And personal testimony means something. In many ways, it could be the greatest indicator that this is the word of God. And it is, as Hebrews four twelve 12 said, it's living, it's active, sharper than a two-edged sword. In other words, there's nothing that it can't touch. Soul, spirit, joint, marrow, anything. One of the things about the Bible that you learn is it tells you things about you that you didn't even know, right? And then whenever you submit yourself to it, it changes your life. Once again, y'all, the Bible was in black and white my whole life. It was a neat book. It had cool stories. I liked the VBSs, I enjoyed all the whatever, but one day everything changed. And it became in color. And whenever I read it, something different happened to me. You know what the Bible says? Whenever you're a follower of Christ, you have the spirit in you. I couldn't before. Personal testimony is a huge part. So the last question is, what must we do with the Bible? I told you first, I wanted to be on the offensive end and tell you we have great reason to have full confidence that this is the word of God. Unfiltered, you can have confidence in it. You don't have to be afraid of the questions. But unfiltered, if you say you believe that, does your life back it up? Do you treat it as such? If you really believe that this is the word of God, do you really act like it? You all never forget one time in my quiet time, I'm reading Luke 17, and one of the things I tell students a lot is to memorize scripture. Sometimes it can be hard just to pick out a scripture from somewhere. As you read, say, God, show me. Show me the one verse today you want to just just let it hit me. Show me what you want me to see, and sometimes that verse will hit you, and then that's the one to meditate on. That's the one to memorize. That's the one to take with you, and I remember this morning, I was chapter 17 of Luke, verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, for we've only done what was our duty. And I can just remember that striking me, like if I do everything God commands me, I'm still just an unworthy servant who's, who's only doing what he's called me to. He gave me his everything. Why would I not give it back to him? That's just my duty. And I can remember I was looking into this verse, and this is gonna sound a lot more spiritual, honestly, than I really am in my quiet times, just a caveat as I started thinking, I was like, man, I wanna just break down this verse as much as I can. I got a software called Logos where there's a lot of background information. So I look up through Logos, verse 10, and I start reading all these commentaries and these things, and I come across a commentary that was written or spoken by a guy named Halil, and they recorded it. Interesting fact, Halil is the rabbi who discipled Paul before he became a follower of Jesus. And Halil, in, in Pirkei Aboth, which means nothing to me, I doubt it means much to you, Pirkei Aboth 2.8 He says this, if you have learned a lot of Torah, in other words, the first five books of the Bible, if you've learned a lot of Torah, do not credit it favorably for yourself, because for this reason you were created. Modern translation, if you learn a lot of the Bible, don't get arrogant or proud, that's the whole reason you are here. I can remember reading that and putting it in my phone and going like, that's a ministry verse. That's a life verse. Obviously not scripture, you know what I'm saying. If I learn a lot of this, this is the reason I was created. This is the reason you were created. Y'all think about this, we can spend so much of our life putting so much energy to get a good job, to get the riches we want, to get the life we want, whenever we have the greatest riches of all right here. That tells you how to get there and yet we neglect it and we think somehow getting a degree is gonna change that. Finding a spouse is gonna change that. Having some kids is gonna change that. That some aspect in our lives is gonna bring us the joy that literally God's word is in your hands and it's telling you how to get it. Do we treat it like it's God's word? Do we act like it's God's word? If we're gonna be unfiltered tonight, we'd say this, we struggle. How many of you have been there where you've read the Bible and you went, man, I have no clue, and you got discouraged and you said, I can't handle it? Or how many of you have read the Bible and you walk away and you go, I don't even remember what I just read, and you walk away discouraged? How many of you have grown up your whole life in church and you go, you know what, I couldn't even tell you Genesis to Revelation, just give you an idea of what the Bible really is about without just saying the Sunday school Jesus How you say, you know what, I don't have confidence to open much, if any, of this and actually read it. I don't know how to actually sit down and understand it. Unfiltered, you know who is with you in that boat? My guess is look to your left or to your right. What I want to tell you guys is we want to change that for you. We want to help you in that. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. The devil's number one goal for you and me is to keep us away from this book, And the easiest way he does it is busyness. My mom always said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Isn't that the truth? The number one killer of of, of God's word is not anything outside, it's the fact that we don't actually open it and read it. But, guys, hear me. We want to help. We wanna help. If I could, I would tell you, hey, look, let's meet up every single morning, let's walk through this, let's walk through texts. That's just not really sustainable, right? And I don't know if that's really healthy for y'all, or for me, honestly. My wife having to take care of the kids all morning by herself, that'd be bad for us. But what I wanna tell you is you have to, I wanna give you just a few tools of how you can handle God's word. Just a few, just a list. How must, or what must you do with the Bible? You have to understand, you got to devote your life to knowing it and living for it. And so how can you do that? One is this, you got to set aside a time. you got to set aside a time where you're going to get in God's word. Set aside a time. For me, it's in the morning before everything gets going. That's what I find the majority of people where they find success in reading God's word is early. My mentor, he schedules it different throughout his day. I could never do it. I know some folks that they do it at night. If you can do that, that is fine. Have a time where you say, this time is set aside to be with the Lord. Second thing you need is a place. You need a place. Whether that's on the couch. My wife will sit on the couch, and she does what I'm sure a lot of you girls can do. She like crinkles up in all kinds of whatever, and like can write and do that other stuff. I'm not flexible at all. I can't hardly touch my knees, right? And so like I'm over here, like trying to do all kinds of stuff and holding paper. No, 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 I gotta be at a table. (laughs) That's my place. I know my associate Danny, he says, I gotta go to the depot, I gotta get out of my house. I know some people go to another coffee shop. I know for me, whenever I was in college, what I loved to do is I loved to go to Cook Park. I mean, I prayed a lot out there. Just walk around and be around God's creation. It changes the way you pray. Feel the wind as you talk to him. You gotta have a place. Third, you need to have a plan. And y'all, I've underestimated the need for this. And for many of you, I'm sorry. You have to have a plan. My idea in the past has been, there are so many out there. But y'all, understand, sometimes the greater options makes it even harder to choose, right? I understood this whenever I gotta go buy baby food. All these options, I don't know. Just give me one option. Keep them alive, just give me that one. <laughs> but what I wanna do for you tonight is, y'all, I'm taking my leadership, or I'm not taking, I'm doing with my leadership, and several other people in here, we're doing a plan together where you can choose just to read one chapter a day, five days a week, and you can stay with us. I wanna ask, if you're reading First College's uh, reading plan, raise your hand. So I want you to see the people around you. You may tell you what that changes, is it's the fourth point that you need. It's people. You need accountability. You know what happens whenever I read Galatians 2 this morning? And now, people may be a day in front of or a day behind. They might not be a day in front, but maybe a day behind or two days behind or whatever. But I know we're reading the same thing and I have a question. You know how easy it is to go to the friend and say, hey, did you read that? you have any clue? (laughs) You know what's going on there? You need accountability. Somebody to walk with you through this. If you do it by yourself, you're gonna get discouraged need accountability for someone to say hey look I'm struggling too but let's get back at it let's get back at it let's meet up let's meet up and do it at the same time let's do this whatever you have to do you need people to help you with that and y'all just so you know I didn't bring up the plan just to bring up the plan I brought up the plan because I have copies of it on the doors as you walk out tonight I think we got 150 copies if you want to grab one out there read the front it explains it you can read the whole Bible that's what I'm doing several people are doing that you can read just the New Testament you can read the New Testament and the Psalms and Proverbs But whatever you're reading, just stick to that and stick to the plan. Find other people that are doing it and walk with them through it. But it's out there and it's also, you can find in the link, through a link in the bio of our first college Instagram. But the fourth thing, or the last thing I wanna say about this is you gotta have a method. You gotta have some idea, a method of, I can't just come to God's word and just do it. And one, I wanna say this. This is where it helps to learn a few tools. The way I learned to read God's word is I had somebody say, hey look, pray, say God, show me one verse Read a chapter a day, say, God, show me a verse. When he finds that verse, write that verse, and then it's simple. Explain what does it mean, apply it to your life, and now what are you gonna do about it? I like to think of it like this: explain what it means and then say, so what? What's it matter? That's what it says. Okay, so what? So how can I apply it? And then now what? What's gonna look different whenever I get up from the table? Bible's very clear, don't be hearers only, right? Be doers of the word. Our time in God's word should lead us to go and to do. The method I use is a lot like that is the hear method where you highlight either a verse or a theme, you explain it, then you apply it, then you respond to it. But what I would say is this, the main thing you need to have as you read God's word is you need to read it to understand it, to go and apply it. I didn't understand that for a long time. If you don't read to apply, you'll get puffed up with knowledge and you'll get arrogant and you just won't be very fun to be around. And honestly, you'll think you're here in your spiritual maturity. Whenever If you look at Hebrews 5.14, spiritual maturity is based on what you do, not what, what, what you know. Go and apply it. And the last thing I wanna share with you all is one of the things I wanted to do just for my leadership team that I talked to them about is I send out an email every morning of, to hold me accountable. This is an email of what I read, my here entry, what I highlighted, what I explained, what I apply and how I'm gonna respond and I send that out to my leadership team and anybody who gives me their email address that wants to be on that. If you wanna be on that as well, I don't mind sending that to you. Now, so you can use that as some you know, bar of like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be getting. No, I'm just showing you how I do my quiet time to help you maybe in your efforts in doing that. If you wanna do that, I'd love to help you with that as well. The last two things I'd say is this. How many of you in here have read 30 Days to Understand the Bible? Raise your hand. Either have read through it or have going through it. So some people. Y'all, 30 Days to Understand the Bible is a tool. Well, it's kind of hard to see. And people are like. (laughs) So 30 Days to Understand the Bible is actually a tool that helps you understand God's word. And if you want a copy or you want to look at that, y'all, I'd love to help provide that for you. The last thing I'll say is a study Bible is really helpful as you read through God's Word. It helps because as you read, if you have questions, it gives you little bits of commentary. It doesn't give you a ton of commentary, but it helps you as you walk along through certain questions that you have. And you can find those online, or you can find really good ones. NIV study Bible, ESV study Bible, life application study Bible. There's a lot of great ones out there. But the whole point of all this, y'all, is 2 Timothy 2.15 says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Y'all, one day we're gonna stand before God and give an account for what we've done with this. And I'm telling you, I don't want him to have any reason to say I didn't run the race well. I don't want him to have any reason to say I didn't utilize this well. And I think I've said this before, I picture sometimes a bar graph, how much time I spent here versus how much time I spent in other aspects of my life. I want this to measure up. We'll spend a lot of our lives searching once again for riches and for joy whenever the greatest rich and the greatest joy is found here. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. God, I love you. But I know it's only because I know your word. And what your word says is you first loved me. And God, that's for us as well. Well, because of your great love for us, you gave us your word. God, you preserved it in a way for us to know that it is your word. And God, I just pray tonight, Lord, give us confidence in your word. Lord, if we have questions after this, help us ask, help us search, Lord. Your word has been taking it for 2,000 years. It can still handle it. God, I pray tonight, convict our hearts where we're not treating it as your word. Lord, would help us also know that we're not meant to do this alone, Help us run this race together, Lord. Help us be a part of a plan together. Help us be a part of a group of people doing this, Lord, seeking to get in your word, and may it be so that I push people more to do this than any other thing in their life. God, you've blessed us with your word. Help us use it rightly, and ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Over half of the people groups in the world don't have a copy of God's word. 46% 46% of them do y'all we have a responsibility what I want to tell you tonight as we respond I know it's different but I want you to think about this maybe you need to sit there and you need a plan maybe you need to repent because you know that this is God's word but you just haven't treated it like that maybe you need to write a list of who you're going to contact and say hey let's do this together whatever you need to do maybe you need to talk to someone maybe even just walking through this you go you know what I need to give my life to Jesus I've been a skeptic I haven't believed in it I'm gonna tell you tonight's opportunity for you to do that. Sit, think, pray, worship, or stand and worship, whatever you wanna do, just worship however you feel led to do so.